Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. In this episode of Humanize, we will explore the human body. Is your body engineered, or did it evolve through impersonal and random processes over countless millions of years of natural selection? And what difference does the answer to that question make? My guests are the authors of Your Design Body, a new book that explores the complexity of the human physical form, concluding that such an intricate and complicated system could not have arisen by chance. Steve Loffman is a public speaker, author, computer scientist, and engineering consultant in the design of enterprise-class systems with expertise in the difficulties of changing complex systems to perform new tasks. He was a founding member of the International Foundation for Cooperative Information Systems and has published many juried papers and book chapters on information commerce and related topics. Several years ago, he began to apply his expertise to the study of living systems. He leads the engineering research group at the Discovery Institute. Dr. Howard Glickman is a primary care and hospice physician with more than 40 years of practice in clinical and hospital settings. He is the author of the Design Body series for Evolution News and Science Today. Gentlemen, welcome to Humanize. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Uh, you know, you both come from different fields of science, one dealing with engineering and the other with biology. What convinced you to collaborate in writing your design body? Let's start with uh, Steve. Uh, yeah, this is Steve. I, um, I, had, I, I hadn't really thought about this much, but I started reading some of what Howard was writing, and I realized just how much more interesting it was than he even he realized. So uh, I started seeing it from an engineering lens. And so I called Howard and uh, said, hey, we should, we should do some work together. So uh, eventually that turned into this book. And Howard, what did you think when he said that? Yeah, this is Howard. Well, um, yeah, I've been basically the history is that I've been writing about this uh, for about 20 years uh, had various articles on the internet uh, about how the body works. And that sort of culminated in this 81-part series that I did at Discovery Institute several years ago called The Design Body. And uh, and it's through that, I think, that Steve read what I was writing and basically said to me, you've been writing about medicine, but what you don't realize is you've been really writing about engineering as well. And that's what prompted him to contact me several years ago and got us talking and working together. That must have been a bit of a surprise, huh? 
Well, not, not totally, uh, but but it was a surprise that uh, you know we were trying to figure out how to how to do this because I pretty well knew what I needed to do, but the question became how were we going to apply the engineering into the writing? And how long did it take to uh, do the research and writing of the book? Well, this is Howard. Uh, basically, I I simply from my perspective, I just continued. I'd written this in material in several different ways over the over the many years, trying to get it down to a uh, level that the average person can understand, and so we just it sort of just went through that again. And then with Steve on board, uh, you know, he was editing, and we were trying to figure out where to fit in the engineering at the same time. Yeah, Steve, I find the engineering aspect interesting. I mean, you you uh, don't normally see that kind of application in terms of the biological sciences or even some of the uh, let's say culture war kinds of agendas. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's. That's uh, I think that's a problem. Um, these systems, the, the systems that are required to make the human body work are exactly the kinds of things that engineers design and build. We, we know how to build systems. So if you, if you look at living systems as, the, as if they are systems, which they are, you can see all kinds of new research avenues. It's, it's, I think it would be uh, terribly interesting for scientists to go down the engineering path much more deeply than they have yet. So it's, it's sort of new for them. And uh, we're, we're actually, we have a, a, a group working on um, building an engineering text for biologists. So we, oh, we're, we're, we're talking about doing a textbook uh, at some point for uh, biologists that will teach them what it is they're looking at and, and how to approach it in a, in a more um, potentially more productive way. That's very interesting. You're basically saying that whether something is natural or whether, let's say, it's man-constructed like a bridge, certain principles apply across the board. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. If, if I could just add something, Wesley uh, Howard here. Um, a question I was asked recently and then also all I noticed on the Internet is that as physicians and biologists, you know, I'm not a biologist, I'm a physician, but, but we don't tend to think like engineering. engineers. We're, we're not aware that we're doing engineering without realizing we're sort of doing reverse engineering. So we're trying to figure out if something works. But because as physicians, we're not really making anything. We're sort of just trying to figure what's going on to, to try to fix it. Um, we don't tend to have that perspective. And just as a comment, um, I just noticed uh, yesterday someone had written a, a comment about our book, and he, he said he had a PhD in physiology. And he pretty well, pretty well, you know, he, he sort of recommended our book saying that, you know, everything went along perfectly. But he was really impressed with the uh, cascading problems. And he goes right through the cascading problems and says, hey, that's really neat. This is an engineering problem, but here is a PhD in physiology as well, who no, we, we just don't, we didn't realize we're, we're not thinking like engineers. And this is, I think, what's important for everybody to start thinking that way. Uh, and so then they get an understanding of where everything came from, you know. Of course, engineering more than implies some an intentionality or, or a design. So let's get into the controversies uh, mm -hmm. that you address. And uh, and a lot of your book isn't controversial in terms of how the body works, and we'll, we'll discuss that too. But let's talk about Darwinism. How You know, there are different definitions of that term. Um, how do you define Darwinism, at least for purposes of the book? Uh, this is Steve. I'll, I, I'll take a shot at that. Um, so we, we use sort of a 
class, we start with classical Darwinism, you know, straight out of his origins book from 1859. And, and most of the variations that have, have occurred since then uh, go by different names, you know, neo-Darwinism or things like that. But they all have the same basic uh, causal factors involved. So there are, there are only four. Uh, causal factors in Darwin's theory, and uh, we um, there are um, heritability, uh, random mutation, uh, uh, which is uh, neo-Darwinism. Darwin himself didn't really define uh, what the mechanism of change was, uh, and then there's um, natural selection and time. Those are the four things that cause things to change over time in, in, uh, in all variations of Darwin's theory. There are, there are a couple of uh, uh, others which we, we discuss briefly in the book, but, um, but those are the only things that can really uh, do any work. And, and they're, they're not very capable. So when you look at those from an engineering perspective, they are not only uh, – inadequate or insufficient or incomplete they just are flat out incapable they just can't ever get there certainly not gradually and that's one of the main uh ideas in the book is that uh that these causal hurdles we talk about uh we and we present quite a large number of them uh they cannot be overcome gradually even if the system is designed you cannot get there gradually if you have to be alive at every step life is very persnickety <laughs> if you don't <laughs> solve all the problems the all the time uh, you're you're dead so you know it's, it's a problem <laughs> uh, howard how would you define intelligent design at least for the purposes of your book well you know i think as the uh discovery institute said it's sort of a scientific theory which holds that some features of the universe and living things are best explained by an intelligent cause uh, rather than an undirected process such as natural selection you know acting on genetic mutation so you know that's you know very simplistically uh that's as simple as a simple explanation for what intelligent design is and that's where where i was coming from originally uh the idea where steve's coming from with respect to Darwinism, you know, I, I, I wasn't really into the theory too much, but the problem was knowing how life actually works, uh, how, how the body has to control various things like oxygen, carbon dioxide, calcium, etc. I knew that there were several parts that needed to be in place uh, to manage that. So inherently, I knew there was a, uh, a difficulty with Darwinism right from the beginning. And it was really hard for me to understand how, frankly, how people accepted this, uh, knowing how you know, how the body and how life really actually works. So are you saying that something, now I'm completely na uh, naive on this issue because I, you know, I don't engage it too much. Um, are you, what, what I heard you just say is that there are things that, re that life requires to be life that actually have to exist before they can be, before they evolve. In other words, the things that mm. are required you can't you can't have it if it comes later. It has to be first. Is that right? Yeah, Howard. I'll just answer that a bit. And basically, the with respect to Darwin and evolution itself, we're already get, you know he never really explained how life itself comes into being. So you can't have uh, evolution without life already. All right, reproduction has to be in existence. So so, and we don't yet know how life began, do we? Right. So that's so already you're talking about the cell cell structure, 
chemical balance, uh, volume of the cell, all those issues that, that have, have never really been addressed. So that's 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 already at the first phase, right? And then and then we're talking about life itself. That uh, you know, you have this interdependency. You know, you need you need oxygen for the cells, but but your lung you need lungs to bring in oxygen, but those cells need oxygen themselves. And then of course it needs the cardiovascular system, which but the cardiovascular system needs to get oxygen, so it needs the lungs. So you have this interdependency between the systems and actually an, an auto dependency or circuit, you know, causal circularity for the actual organs themselves. I'll let I'll let Steve add to that. Yeah, I I, I might uh, uh, take a little more engineering perspective on this. I I view the so if, when you look at Darwinism. Uh, Darwin requires all the hard problems to already be solved before it can do anything. So how do you solve oh, that's all very hard, interesting. How do you solve all the hard problems in the in at the beginning? So so uh, the, one of my favorite examples is salt. Your body has to control its salt content. How do you how do you stay alive controlling your salt while you're waiting for a salt control system to evolve? Well, you can't. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly the point. That's a causal hurdle. If you have to control salt, it has to be controlled by a control system. And control systems are not only irreducibly complex, but they uh, virtually always have to be coherent. They have to have many parts working in, in a cooperative way to achieve the needed result. So is it like saying you can't build the roof until you finish the walls? Yes, exactly. Well, it's even worse than that. So, so the question is, um, you, you, you can't really, uh, it's like how many parts do you have to have in place before your car will drive? All of them, <laughs> practically. Well, you know, you, you may not need the leather on the seats, um, right. but you need all of the main parts or it's not a car. So, and you need uh, gasoline. Yeah, yeah, you, and there's a lot of parts in a car. Uh, I mean, even the simplest cars from the early days had a lot of parts, and they were they all had to be arranged, organized, and and constructed in just the right way, or it wasn't going to work. And that would never happen by just throwing stuff together and waiting for it to kind of create a car, right? Yeah, right. So, so I mean, how how many years could you go on three tires? You know? Yeah. So your critics of, of intelligent design, um, I often see that they uh, they try to define what intelligent design is and the media kind of goes along with it in a way that I find to be, frankly, false. Uh, they say it's creationism by another name, which, of course, implies that it's a Christian uh, theistic kind of God created the world in seven days kind of thing. Uh, or they... Um, They'll say it's a God of the gaps fallacy. That is that which science can't yet um, define or describe. It's well, that's where God is. But of course, science is explaining more and more and more. How do you respond to those criticisms? Uh, So this is Steve again. I, I'll, um, I I like to say that, that this is a, not a quantitative problem. It's a qualitative problem, right? So uh, they're, they're throwing down uh, uh, challenges, uh, or we're throwing down challenges, and they're making faith statements. So trust us, we're <laughs> scientists, we'll figure it out. Uh, we don't have any idea how it works, but, uh, but we'll figure it out someday. And that, what that is really is an appeal to their worldview as the only reasonable worldview. 
And that's a, that's kind of like a desire for there to be nothing but materialism. Is that right? Do you think? That's correct. Right, right. But to me, it's what we're really talking about is a qualitative problem. So this is like, uh, I, I want to drive my car from my home in Colorado to uh, Florida. Um, uh, that's doable. I just need to be able to buy gas, which apparently is very expensive these days, and uh, you know, and, and give it some time and some effort, and I can do that. But I cannot drive my car to London. Right. It, and that's and how, how does that? How's that? The analogy there. So we have these causal hurdles. You, Darwinism requires things to occur in relatively small um, increments. You know, he, he's into gradualism, and um, gradualism can't do it. You must have discrete, relatively large, discrete leaps, and that's anathema to Darwin's theory. Do, do more modernistic um, evolutionary biologists uh, still accept that uh, small incremental approach uh, to evolution? Uh, there are... There are several variations on on this, like horizontal gene transfer and other mechanisms where you can obtain leaps uh, in in a given organism. But those leaps had to have come from somewhere, right? They those those quantities of capability, uh, discrete jumps in capability, had to have come from somewhere else, and they they don't have an explanation for that. So. Um, it had to have occurred gradually somewhere else, and then it may be accepted by a given organism quickly. Uh, so there is that. Howard, I just want to circle back into something you commented on earlier on about the God of the gaps. Really what's happened is, and this is really, you know, really what's happened is what we write about is based what what we really know about science. So actually, like Steve is alluding to, the more we understand how life actually works, um, the more the you know, neo-Darwinian narrative um, it becomes impossible. And certainly at the time of Darwin, one could, one could argue that you know, they didn't know as much about the cell, etc. I think if he would have spoken to a few engineers, he probably wouldn't have brought his, his theory forward. Um, I sort of used to give him some slack on that, but after meeting Steve and talking about engineering, I realized there were some obvious things like, you know, hey, you got a, you got a feeling, something in your body tells you you got to breathe, something tells you you got to drink, something tells you you got to eat. I mean, there's something that's, that's an, those are engineering sort of things. So what we're really talking about, what we've, the reason why we've written the book is to explain to the public how life actually works. And, and the, the best example, I think, is the body. We know the most about it. And I think that's where people are most interested. Uh, so really what it comes down to is, is, Putting, like like Steve says, these causal hurdles. Where did this all come from? Um, and instead of it's it's not the god of the gaps. You know, it's it's like well, we have all this information. Our problem, if you actually, if you're familiar with Dr. Behe, Michael Behe, who wrote Darwin's Black Box and 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 the Irreducible Complexity, the complaint against him is that he doesn't have a good enough imagination. Right. All right. This is the difficulty we're having. We we you know we live in a real. This is the other thing about engineers and doctors. We live in a real world, okay? One could argue, should we be talking about evolution? Should we be talking about biology? Well, you know what? If I if I get something wrong or do something wrong or Steve gets something wrong, you know, people suffer, people die, people lose money. If an evolutionist, evolution biologist gets it wrong, well, one could argue about people's worldview, but on a practical level, on a day-to-day level, it really doesn't matter, 
okay? But but we we live in the real world, so when if we don't get things right, if what we're talking about isn't right, someone's going to let us know, you know, with respect to at least what we're talking about science and engineering, which is, and, and we pretty well got it right. So it sounds like you're talking about the difference between what is is and how is came to be. Yes. So what we're talking about in the, in this quote controversy close quote isn't what thing how things are today how the body works but how it got to be where it is today is that right exactly yes do you guys deny that natural selection exists <laughs> <laughs> well let's uh let's i'll take that one on um i don't what we deny is that nature can select so if there's something going on that's called natural selection it is not selecting so to the extent nature can select anything, it will select everything for death, right? <laughs> equilibrium, e- equilibrium is, is the end result. Um, the, the forces of physics and, and, and uh, chemistry are always pushing toward equilibrium. So, um, so natural selection, and, and even Darwin admitted that he, this is probably a misnomer. Before he died, he, he, uh, he regretted choosing this term. Uh, but, uh, but the idea of the, the idea of natural selection, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong. And again, you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm not a biologist and I'm not a scientist, but that, um, if you, if, if a a certain, as we now know it, a certain mutation, let's say in a gene gives you a trait that makes it more likely that you will survive beyond a certain point and to be able to reproduce that that will then over a long period of time, perhaps millions of years, lead to changes in the physical form that are actually more uh, uh, akin to or more aligned for survival. Is that how natural selection generally would be considered to work? Yeah, I think that's an accurate description. Yeah. Uh, If if I heard what you said, though, you may have had the wrong because it doesn't lead to a change. The change has to occur first. Okay. So this is the the error in Ah. culture. Natural selection does not do anything. Okay. So basically, as I think Steve wrote in the book, the survivors survive. Big deal. Okay. I think they pretty well knew this before Darwin, you know, like uh, Rasmus Darwin, you know, his, his, uh, his uh, grandfather, you know, talked about this as well. The key thing here is that in, in, for life, you have to have genetic mutation or random variation for a change to occur. Once that occurs, if it, if it gives them an advantage in some way, right, then then yes, it makes sense that you know they would they would reproduce and, and, and live. And of course, a lot of times, uh, what we've seen in, in certainly human in, in humans is that a lot of times it's a it's an actual devolution, an actual like for sickle cell. All right, so then actually a worsening of the function, but because of the environment, because they're exposed to malaria, and for some reason it gives them an advantage to protect them against malaria, even though the hemoglobin is, is a sickling uh, causes sickling it does give them an advantage. So, but the bottom line here is that natural selection does not do anything. It, it only, uh, it only allows, it, it preserves those that have the advantage, but they have to have a genetic mutation or random variation to, to bring on this either new information or a new, you know, a, a new organ system, et cetera. So that's, that, that's a big distinction because a lot of times you'll, you'll read in the press, even from Darwinists, they'll say, well, natural selection did this. You know, the giraffe needed to be, grow a longer neck, so it did. You know what I mean? Like, well, how? It, you have to explain the genetic mutations and the change in the anatomy and the physiology first. And then once it occurs, okay, 
then you know then natural selection will will kick in. Yeah, if I if uh, I could add to that, there's there's also ahead, uh, a confusion. Uh, natural selection uh, cannot generate anything. Nature cannot generate uh, organization or complexity of the kind we're talking about here. So um, what Darwinism lacks is a theory of degenerative. In other words, a way to overcome these causal hurdles. And, um, and, and that's essential. It, it may, nature may be able to preserve things because if, if you get things wrong, you die. So, um, so, but, but that's the, but that's the point of natural selection is that it actually, if the changes Howard said occurs, then, um, it's likely that, and, and that increases the chance of staying alive then that's likely to pass down the generations. Is that accurate? Right. I think that's an yes, accurate yes. description, yes. But the, the, there's a distinction to be made also in um, what happens to the individual and what happens in a population. So uh, the, 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 the general theory of evolution is essentially a thought experiment. There's not a lot of data that supports any of this. So we don't see it's things theoretical, like, just like ideas theoretical. Is that right? <laughs> well, I yes, I yes, we're talking in, in the theoretical realm here about events in the past that we did not observe. So yep. we have very limited data about what happened in the past. I've always thought of a natural selection, and then we'll move on to more of your uh, you what you write about in the book. But I've always thought of it that if <laughs> it was a a system that was created, it's really quite brilliant because it allows, it, it prevents life, generally speaking, from becoming sclerotic and allows for a dynamic change. Uh, what do you think of that thought? Well, we, we uh, introduce a, a theory of biological design in our book in which we account for both the generation of uh, new features and functions in, in biology and uh, also stasis. The, the fossil record shows us vast stasis, and Darwin cannot account for either of those. So, What, what is vast stasis? Vast stasis. So once you see an, an organism appear in the fossil record, it, it essentially doesn't change. I see. So I've, I've read, and again, I might be wrong, but I've read that the horseshoe crab, for example, hasn't changed in millions of years. Yeah, there are there are hundreds of examples of what people call living fossils. In other words, organisms that are currently extant, but which uh, we see in the fossil record from way, way, way back, up to a billion years ago for some bacteria. And they haven't changed. And they haven't changed in, in any detectable way. <laughs> so um, is your book religiously or scientifically based, Howard? Uh, it's it's scientifically based. Everything we're talking about is how physiology, how the body works, and trying to explain you know, where it came from. So it's yes, it's it's totally science. And the book is primarily about uh, the human body and its systems. And of course, you can't go into every particular system that exists in the human body because it would be five thousand words. Um, but is there anything about which you write in terms of biological processes? without the, you know, getting into the causes of it, that would be controversial, like how the heart works, how the blood works, this kind of thing. No, I, I don't think so. I think that, uh, as I said, this PhD in physiology reviewed our book, uh, sort of said, yeah, everything's right. Um, 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 
but basically, uh, we re we really did cover the whole body. We 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 went through the, every system in the body. Um, uh, we obviously, like like Steve had said, if we did everything, then the, the book would be on wheels. But uh, we, we do really cover the whole the whole body because because they're all interconnected anyway. So there's really nothing controversial about how everything works. Uh, it's just that we couldn't get into as much detail as we'd like, um, of course, from an engineering and a, and, a, and a medical perspective. But it's it's all. It's all the truth of how everything works. That's know. what volume twos are for. <laughs> yeah, we, we should note that we we worked very hard to make the this material accessible to non technical people. Right. That's why I could understand it. <laughs> well, that's great if you're understanding it. That's 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 great. We're very happy. About no, that. I could. Yeah, yeah. And, and as I said, I'm a lawyer. None of this stuff. You know, I became a lawyer because I was lousy at math. So. <laughs> um. Uh, and one final question, as and then we'll get into some more specifics. Um, this is about the human body, but it it really the human body, let's say, except for perhaps the size of the brain or something, doesn't really differ dramatically from other mammal bodies, does it? Or no, does that's it? A good, uh, I, I I'm not an expert on comparative anatomy, but but in general, if you're talking about other uh, uh, mammals, no, and it, it's very very similar, and and I think that's what's so great uh, if you think about this. Um, every a lot of the a lot of the things we talk about are like there's certain specific uh, uh, the pe people's like chem chemistry has to stay within a certain range, etc. The, the size of the uh, the organs have to be a certain size, but but obviously that's going to change for for different animals. So every critter, right. uh, it, everything's designed for each critter to to get along, you know, to, for everything to work properly. It works fine in humans. And like you said, except for the brain uh, being much larger than in percentage weight, weight to, uh, you know, size to, to weight uh, ratio. But in general, this everything we're talking about applies to every animal at a different level. So obviously, say the blood pressure of a giraffe because of the longer neck is going to have to be a little different. Everything has to be designed very closely. And even though the systems may work similarly, the actual numbers, when you actually get down to the actual function and what's really going on, may be slightly different. That's interesting. And, and Steve, you guys write about um, the difference between um, experimental science and inferential science. Is that right? Uh, yeah, we, we don't spend a lot of time on that, but uh, we do talk about that. So when you're, when you're dealing with events that are not repeatable, which uh, is anytime there's contingency in a process, uh, things are not generally repeatable. And that's true whenever an intelligent agent is involved. So uh, Explain that a little, little more so I can get it. Um, what do you mean by that? Sure. So in, in physics, you know, you drive your car too fast around a corner, and physics tells you what will happen every time. It right. will not vary. It's the same every time. If you go too fast, you're going off the road. Um, you know, given the same situation, the same results will happen. And you can prove that experimentally over repeated attempts. That, right. And you can repeat the experiments any number of times. You'll always get the same results. So that's, that's um, experimental science. Uh, inferential science is uh, applied in other, other domains like archaeology and forensics. And that's where you determine the best possible uh, answer to the question based on what you know, but the the actual events were contingent. You don't know what they were, and so you have to infer what happened. 
And both our theory and Darwin's theory are inferential in that respect. You, you cannot repeat events in history. We don't know if a, if a stray gamma ray hits, a, hits the DNA molecule and changes something. We don't know that that happened. We don't know when it happened. We can't repeat it. So it's, it's very hard to know what happened in the past. So, and in other words, so just for example, for the beginning of life, we don't know how that happened, and right. and then um, the theoretically, you know, there have been various um, hypotheses uh, that can't be proved, and then supposedly there was one-celled um, organisms in the primordial soup, and somehow they became more complex, even though the general thing would be to go the other direction, right? Right. Right. That's our, that's our degradation. Our, one of our causal factors is degradation. Everything will degrade. So it's, it, it, we have two fundamental questions. Why is anything alive? And why isn't everything dead? <laughs> well, we wait long enough, that'll happen. Well, but, uh, why but, hasn't yeah, it you already say, in fact, happened? You, you say in your book, there are billions of ways to be dead, but only a few ways to be alive. Why is that important? And, and, and give me an example of that. So, so let me, uh, in fact, I think Richard Dawkins said that, right, Steve? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but here's an important distinction. All right. So we're already talking about, you are, Wesley, you already alluded to a unicellular life, okay, one cell organism. We don't know where life came from, we don't know where the cell came from, and we could get into all the details of how the cell works and how it controls itself. But but then the next step is like what you're commenting on. You've got one cell, all right, and in general, a unicellular organism like an amoeba lives in water. So it can so the key thing you need to understand is the cells need certain things to live. It needs oxygen and 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 basically sugar. Let's talk about that with respect to um, uh, for energy. And, and it, gets, it gets what it needs from its environment, and then it, it, it siphons off what, it, you know, its byproducts are, you know, the, the, uh, from its metabolism into the, into, the, into the water. Okay, so a unicellular organism, when you got, once you got that, you know, you're going on, you move on with that. The next question becomes, okay, well, we're multicellular organisms. We have 30 plus trillion cells. And now this becomes, as Steve would tell you, an engineering problem because the cells are no longer uh, in contact with the environment. Right? You need to have all these systems to, to get what your cells need. So for an example, very quickly, a thought experiment here, which we go through in the book in the first three chapters, is the first problem, we all know that we need oxygen. Every cell in your body needs oxygen. We know that if we don't have a new supply of oxygen within three or four minutes, we die. And that's because the body cannot store oxygen. A lot of people may not realize that the body can store water. It can shift water back and forth from cell to cell into the blood, blood vessels. And it can store sugar and fat, obviously, but it can't store oxygen. <laughs> so, so, so the first engineering problem, okay, when you when you have a multicellular organism, right? No one asks this question. Is okay, the very first problem that has to be solved is every cell in the body has to have enough oxygen, right? So for us, we know we've got a set of lungs. We got a respiratory system. We can get into all that. You know, the structure of the lungs, the chest wall the diaphragm, the muscle below the chest wall, it's below the lungs that contracts to bring in oxygen. Um, and so you got that system, right? But then of course you have to control that system. How does the body know that you need oxygen? So you actually have sensors in the main arteries going to your brain that detect oxygen and carbon dioxide. And also 
uh, carbon dioxide sensors in your brain. So when they're when they're sensing these changes, if you hold your breath, you're, all your cells are using up oxygen. So your oxygen level starts to drop, and your carbon dioxide level starts to rise because because the equation ends up with water and carbon dioxide on the other side. And too much carbon dioxide is toxic to the body, toxic to your cells. So the respiratory center tells you, oh, you got to take a breath, and you hold your breath, and eventually you do breathe, right? So when you breathe, and you're, you're, this is all that's needed just to get oxygen to all the cells so that your, your diaphragm moves, brings in air, goes through all the structures of the lungs, and pr- puts oxygen into your bloodstream, right? But you haven't solved the problem because now you've got to get that oxygen from the lungs to every cell in your body. And the problem is that water, oxygen doesn't dissolve well in water, okay? So in other words, the serum or plasma, yes, exactly, right? The serum or plasma in your blood does not dissolve, oxygen doesn't dissolve very well there, okay? So that's why you need hemoglobin, okay? So you need red cells in your bone marrow to make red blood cells that make hemoglobin. So the hemoglobin has iron, and that grabs the oxygen from the alveoli when it comes in from the, from the lungs, and it carries that to the cells. But, of course, now we got another problem because hemoglobin requires iron, and you need to get iron into your body. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, this, this is what Steve and I have been laughing about the last and three on. or four years. So, Steve, so, Steve now we've just – had a very quick description of the respiratory system and the problems that are associated with making sure that all of our trillions of cells are, are nourished with oxygen. Now, you're saying that in order to make that happen, that's a tremendous engineering problem, right? Absolutely. We, have a, we actually have a diagram in the book, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, we call the problem of cascading problems. This is what engineers do. I, so I start with the problem. I got to get oxygen to every cell in my body. And we we've kind of follow that problem. To get to, to solve that problem, I have to solve three or four other problems. And for each of those problems, I have to solve three or four other problems. And for each of those, I have to solve three or four other problems. And only when I solve all the problems can I solve the problem I started out with. This is why engineers design things in hierarchical layers. Uh, and the what body do you mean is, by that? So... So uh, if, you, if you look at your, you take your car apart, you'll see that there's a carburetor, right? right? The carburetor is part of making the engine work. But if you take the carburetor apart, you can see it's solving its own, it has its own problems that it solves internally. And so to inside, be a carburetor. Yeah, that's right. To be a carburetor, it needs a lot of different parts on the inside. And they have to be shaped just right and organized just right. And they have to be assembled in a, in a precise uh, order. So, and if they're not pre- assembled in that precise order, it won't be a carburetor. That's right, and it won't work right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so this is this is what we talk about. So, in this just this one respiration example, it's a two-page diagram, by the way. takes a takes a cover a, a page a two-page spread, and it uh, and it highlights about thirty problems you have to solve just at a high level, and it touches on virtually every system in the body, your gastrointestinal tract, it touches on your pulmonary, pulmonary system, and your lungs, uh, talks about how you have to have a diaphragm to create suction to draw um, air into your lungs. So it, it, it touches on almost all the systems in the body, and it's just done at a high level. So all of these body systems, and we won't have time to get into all of them, I mean, you even got into the reproductive system and the, and the engineering mm-hmm. uh, required for the male and female reproductive systems, but, but they all involve, what, what was the term you used where you have to, a hierarchical or there was a term yeah. you used for engineering? 
A design hierarchy. That's design right. hierarchy. They all require that. Yes. Yes. Wesley, and, can I, can I, and, yeah. and basically you're saying that just can't happen by random chance, particularly since you have to have certain things first in order to get things that come along later. But we, but we're being told that the things that came later were actually first. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So yeah. This is uh, the, the problem here is degrees of freedom. So degrees of freedom. Yeah, when you're when you're designing a system, there are a lot of different ways you can design it. Yeah, and uh, and there are essentially in a complex system, there are almost infinite degrees of freedom, and so you can never randomly find a solution to a really complex problem uh, because there's just not enough time. It's well, like so I, just how- want, I just want to bring up one point here, right? What we just described to you, right? Yeah. That's Darwin of the gaps, okay? He's not God of the gaps, all right? That, that is the reality of what is actually happening, okay? So it requires an incredible imagination from somebody to figure out how all those parts came together to work while, as Steve says, the organism is alive during the entire time, right? So, so this is, we throw it back at them. This is, their idea is Darwin of the gaps because we, we are presenting the science. This is how everything works, Right now, it's up to them to show where did this come from, and we're using engineers to, who who do this work to say, yeah, based on our experience, there's only one way that this come, could come about. And and you have someone like Steve explaining how engineers think and their whole the engineering principles that most of us are not aware of. And that begs the question: What is life? Your whole fr- you discuss that in the first chapter. Give us a sampling of of your thesis in that regard. What is life? Uh, life is uh, an unknown. We can we can observe life, we can describe it, but we can't explain it. And this is um, this this is a kind of a problem for people who are materialists because life certainly appears to be an immaterial quantity. So you can you can kill a cell, leave all of its parts intact. There's no physical damage to the cell. But you cannot start it again. Life always comes from life. It never comes from non-life. Is that the spark of life that we sometimes hear of? Yeah, yeah. We just we just don't know. The spark of life may come from Doctor Frankenstein's experiments, um, but you know his notes were lost in the fire. So we don't really now that he's gone. We just don't know how to do this, and uh, so we we just don't know. Is is life? Um, a force, a property, uh, 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 is it material? Is it immaterial? We just don't know very much about it. We certainly are pleased to have it, but we, we just don't know. A science can't tell us where it came from. It seems to not uh, adhere to our principles quite the way we would like. It, it's interesting. I mean, there was just, uh, as we're recording this, a, a, a young man playing football, professional football, collapsed with a cardiac arrest um, on the field. And um, if your heart is stopped, I guess you're supposed to, you know, you can be called dead, but his heart was restarted. So why isn't that life restarting? Or was he never actually dead in that sense? Well, I'll let Howard mm-hmm. touch that one. <laughs> That's a Howard question. I, I, I'm sure not, well, you know, you could you can have a rhythm problem with your heart, ventricular dysrhythmia, that malignant ventricular dysrhythmia. So, uh, in certain settings, that can cause 
that, that can be brought back. I mean, that's what we do. With in other words, because, because he, what, because um, without getting into that, that oh. young man, and we hope that he's all well, sure, sure. But, um, but once it, when you restart somebody's heart and it succeeds and they remain alive, it's because they actually had never the life force, whatever that is, had never fully left. Is that right? Yes. I mean, what you're talking about is what, it, what is death? I mean, what is the definition of death? And, and generally it's, generally usually a cardiopulmonary arrest and really the reason why that reason why you die if your heart or your lung if your heart stops or your breathing stops or they stop at the same time in general separate from brain death is because you're not getting any new supplies of oxygen uh, and then the cells in your brain die and specifically the cells in your respiratory center which tell you to breathe and then, then it's sort of game over once those cells die there's nothing to tell you to breathe anymore and that's why in the old days before we had cardio you know, cardiopulmonary resuscitation etc Generally, if someone stopped breathing and their heart stops, you know, they were considered, they would die. No one really knows, knows when the soul leaves the body, but they were considered to, be, uh, to die at that point. Um, so in this case with this gentleman, they were able to get his heart back uh, soon enough before he would have, uh, hopefully, have no or limited damage to the brain. Um, and, and in terms of reproduction, it always is life from life. Uh, so you have, let's say, in uh, sexual intercourse and, and uh, a conception, you have two cells that are alive but are not organisms right. coming together and creating a life that is an organism. Is that right? Exactly. And, and of course, the key thing for Darwinism is somehow you have to have the two, the male and the female, have to evolve at the same time. I mean, they have, <laughs> I never thought, yes. Yeah, their systems have to be in place. Besides, besides the whole hormonal the, the actual structures and the hormonal systems and release of the egg and, and the sperm, et cetera, they actually have to be in existence at the same time. And, uh, and so that they can interact together and, and have that conception take place. And even the simplest uh, life form, a one celled amoeba, as you said, it, it procreates by splitting. So that's life from life, correct? Exactly. Right. The, yeah. I, th I think uh, recently, I think it was the 200th anniversary of Louis Pasteur's, uh, his birth, I think, and you know, he he was the one who approved uh, abiogenesis. You know, that, that he proved that abiogenesis was not true because up until that time, they thought that um, you know life could come from uh, uh, from dirt or you know they would they would leave things they would leave things out in the in the in the out in the open and suddenly there would be flies or maggots or whatever. So uh, he was the one who proved that only life comes from life. Now. It seems like right after he did that, the Darwinism came along and said, oh, by the way, yeah, we got chemical evolution and, you know, abiogenesis, because that's the basis of the theory of abiogenesis, you know. So there's uh, no example that we know of, of life spontaneously coming into being from non-life. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct, yes. All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the medical side. Um, uh, you guys, and I'm sure Howard uh, contributed this mostly, so I'll have Howard ask the, answer the question. On the medical side, you write that the body must, one, follow the rules. What do you mean by that? So, yes, um, I think a good example is that what most people don't realize is, as Steve has alluded to, um, the, the laws of nature are trying to cause death all the time. So, for example, um, for mo laws of motion, right? Uh, we all know that in order for something to move, this is the laws of nature, in order for something to move, you have to have enough energy to go against inertia, 
friction and if it's going uphill gravity, okay? So, you, so for example, you, for your blood to move around your body, you have this innovation. You have to have a heart that pumps the blood around, all right? Otherwise, otherwise the laws of nature are going to stop life from existing. So also for an ex- a, a typical example is in the cell, there's these uh, two forces of nature called diffusion and osmosis, but basically they, they control... Um, what happens with chemicals and fluid when there, when there's two solutions separated by a membrane, and that's what you have in, a, in the example of a, a cell. The inside of the cell has a totally different chemical composition than the, than the fluid outside the cell, and that has to be maintained. And you have something called sodium pumps that are using about one quarter of your energy at any given moment just to maintain that function. So, so that's again following the rules. This the Life has to follow the rules or actually combat the rules, come up with some sort of innovation to fight the natural natural law, excuse me, laws of nature that are going to cause death. Um, and in fact, that's what happens. As I said, when you don't have oxygen, the, 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 um, the sodium pumps in your cells no longer work. The cells lose their control of volume and chemical content and they die. And when it happens in your respiratory center, your, your brain dies and that's it. So that's what really yet, happens. And- and with yeah. trillions of cells, I, I've read somewhere that uh, our cells are all replaced every seven years, which is a completely different approach to procreation than organ than an organism procreating. So the cells are actually recreating themselves as they're going through all of these various processes of following the rules. Is that right? Exactly. Steve talks a lot about this as well. It's like the life cycle. For some reason, we don't really understand how certain you know, bone cells, certain organ cells are always uh, uh, redeveloping or, or growing and, and, uh, and uh, multiplying, whereas other, where the other glands, glands, the cells may stay a little longer. So, uh, yeah, that, your body changes. That's the whole point. You're, you're, you have totally different cells in the body, but you're the same person for some reason, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm, because of time, I'm going to just skip through the other three. Take control, must possess the exactly right functional capacities, which I think you've just described. And the body must be finally, finely tuned, not finally, finely tuned, correct? Right. So that's what we're talking about. Like, if, for example, uh, you know, your temperature has to stay in a certain range. The oxygen level has to be a certain range. Your blood pressure, if your blood pressure is too high, you burst your blood vessels in the, in the brain. If it's too low, you don't have enough blood flow to the body. And so, you know, your body is controlling the blood pressure, right? Uh, but it has to have some sort of set point somewhere deciding, well, what the blood pressure should be as temperature, et cetera, et cetera. So, and these are all yeah. happening at the same time and for the most part unconsciously as far as we're concerned. We, we're not aware that that is going on. Yes, exactly. And, and until things go wrong, like you stand yeah, up then quickly we know. and you, oh, and you my feel dizzy. Hurts. Yeah. yeah, or you stand up quickly and you feel dizzy, and that's a sign that the blood pressure's dropped too quickly, and it's and the body compensates for that within a second or two. Yeah, I just want yeah. to comment also that the key thing in the book is that that first part of the book that I do a lot of writing about is what's called homeostasis. Things that we, you know, everything has to be just right. But then, of course, life is we, we go on beyond that into you know vision and hearing and balance and and everything else that's uh, makes it great to be human. I mean, th- these are the sort of things that have to be going all the time without our, without our control. I mean, because we don't have the capacity to figure it out all the time. You know, how much water should I drink? Uh, how much oxygen should I take in? You know, what should my temperature be? What am I going to do about it? You know, like if we, 
we don't have the ability to do that anyway to manage. And that. I've noticed that you know when I go to the doctor and he and he shows me the results of the blood test. If I'm within range, I guess you're saying I'm within that area of uh, desirability. And if I'm out of range, then he will take. He will say, "Okay, I'm going to give you this to get you back in range." Right. So that's how medicine works quite a bit. Exactly. This is a very good point. I brought that up in another talk that, you know, if we have all these lab, all this lab work you get done and there's a normal range. Well, where does that come from? And there's a reason why the normal range, it indicates that from our perspective, the body's working okay. It's like your car when they do the diagnostics on the car, you know, or any other machine. Um, and, and that's where a doctor will decide if it's appropriate, what to do, or, you know, and, and the question is, is it affecting you or not, yes, et cetera. And Steve, on the engineering side, you say that, you know, the, you treat the body, obviously you're talking about the human body, and as we said before, it could apply to other bodies, as a system, and you say systems require many parts. Right, right. That's, uh, that's leading into our coherence principle. So uh, you have – in. It, just a control system. Let's uh, let's take since we were talking about respiration. You have a respiratory control system. All control systems have minimally three completely different parts. One is a sensor. Uh, the sensor has to sense the right thing, and it has to sense it has to be sensitive around the set point, as Howard just described. So you have to know how much oxygen your brain is getting. So you have to have a sensor. And it has to sense oxygen in the blood, and it has to sense the right level. It has to know whether it's too much or too little. And then you need control logic. You need uh, somewhere in your system, you ha there has to be a, a decision uh, tree of some kind or a decision logic which decides what to do. Oxygen's too low. I need to increase the blood pressure. The heart needs to beat faster. I need to close off supply to other parts of the body so we get more blood pressure to the brain, whatever the solution is. So that's, um, that's the decision logic. And then you need those systems that affect the change. So you need systems that can generate more blood pressure. So you need sensors, you need control logic, you need, um, and you need the effectors. So in your knee, you have four ligaments which hold your knee together and they work like a, a four bar system if you're you know your audience has mechanical engineers they'll know a four bar system that's what your car uses for steering hmm. uh, fish's jaws are are built with four bar mechanisms actually some of them have much more complex mechanisms but um so you need multiple parts each part has to be made out of the right materials each part has to be the right shape and size with the right capacity. It has to be able to do just exactly what your body needs. So, And, uh, and you're saying, is that the coherence part that yes, it has to do yes. with the body needs? Yes, yes. So, you know, the only transparent tissue in your body just happens to be on the optical axis in your eyes. <laughs> no one wants to look through your, through your skin and see your spleen. It's yeah. not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> it won't you know, get the, the chicks, right? It won't get yeah, the noodles. Yeah. Yeah. The only place you have enamel is on your teeth. You know, why? Why? That's very interesting. And then you also say in terms of engineering, they must exhibit, and for systems, complex interdependencies. Yes. Yes. And that's uh, what Howard was talking about earlier. So you can't, you can't get oxygen to your cells 
without your cardiovascular system. Uh, your cardiovascular system can't get oxygen without your lungs. So, uh, and each of those. And what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Yeah, that's exactly. right. So there are, yeah, in, in the common vernacular, everything in the body is a chicken and egg problem. And you need it all at the same time. Yes. That's right. So even the, and if you have, if you have, part of it but not the other part that's one of the billion ways to die exactly <laughs> even the simplest single-celled bacteria has to solve 12 or 15 significant problems to be alive and it has to solve another 12 or 15 problems to reproduce so without <laughs> and that's that's just a one-celled yeah, organism. Exactly. And, and, and in the human body, there are thousands and thousands of things going on constantly to keep at the you same alive. time. Is there anything about the body? Um, cause you know, we obviously have learned quite a bit over the last few hundred years. Is there anything about the body that remains a mystery? Uh, yeah. So I'll, uh, I'll answer that and then Howard can correct me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so that's what he does. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I would argue that we don't know very much at all about the human body. We don't even know how many proteins the human body can produce. We don't know where they're produced inside the cells. We don't know when they're produced. I mean, we can sometimes observe that they've been produced, but we don't know the control systems that are doing that work. We don't, we don't, have, we don't understand uh, how medicine works. To a large extent, we, we, you know, in other words, when I take an aspirin because I have a headache, my headache goes away, but you don't know why my headache goes away? Well, I, we may know why your headache goes away, but we don't know what causes cancer and we don't know what makes cancer go away. So there are a mm. lot of genetic uh, variations and, uh, and, and th there are so much that's just not known, which is why we, a lot of the detail we'd like to have put in our book. It's just stuff that's not known. We couldn't put it in because nobody knows. All right, Howard, the cancer question. I always thought mm -hmm. cancer was caused by um, cells being mutating and then kind of forming this tumor and, and, and so forth. We don't know why that occurs. And, and, and doesn't chemo kill particular types yeah. of cells and not other types? I wish I could answer that better. I, I'm, you know, I'm a hospice physician, but I think a lot of what you're saying is true. I think that a lot of the cancer research, though very interesting, a lot of the cancer research uh, it relates to what's called connective tissue. That's a chapter we have in the book that you probably would not find anywhere else. How the how the cell actually interacts with the the milieu in which it is, and so so how uh, they determined that um, when you have uh, pluripotent cells, when they start develop, they, they 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 if you if you change one cell into another milieu. It, it detects the connective tissue around it. And so it will develop, like if you put it in, in like a the background of a nervous tissue, it will become nerve tissue. If you put it back in bone, it will become bone. So this is all, and this is all related to cancer research. So I did want to make a comment though, when you asked about uh, the body, et cetera, you know, when you ask that question, I have to be, admit you admit that I think as a physician, we tend to have hubris like, oh, we know so much, right? Right. But, but what I've learned from Steve is the humility of asking the question, here's the basic question that Steve started asking when I when we started talking. Where is the body plan? Where is the system? We've got the zygote, but where is the three-dimensional system that explains where every cell is going to go, how big it's going to be, you know, how, what the organs are going to look like, etc. 
something I never thought about because engineers think of that way. So even when you asked the question, my reaction was like, yeah, we know a lot. Okay, there's a lot we don't know. But so, so let me let me yeah. let me translate because I was involved in the stem cell fight oh, uh, yeah. back in the two thousands. So, the when a when a egg and the and the uh, sperm uh, unite and fer- there's fertilization. What res- what results from that is a one celled organism called a zygote, and within that one cell is the potential to create all of the differentiated kinds of tissues that we find in our body of which, you know, there are many, 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 but that's all, all existing once that one cell organism comes into being, but we don't know how that we know what happens like differentiation and so forth, but we don't know how you're saying that that one cell organism has within it, all of that potential to create the complexity that you've just been describing. Is that right? Exactly. That's exactly what, and and you put it perfectly. And, and it's just amazing that that one cell organism, all that information about that, that human, you know, human being, it's all in there. And, and Steve's initial question, because he's an engineer, like, you know, when, when people read this book, my perspective was, I'm hoping they're going to ask themselves, how does that really work? But on top of that, the Steve perspective, is how do you build that from the ground up? And, and, and over the last few years that Steve and I have worked on this, he keeps asking the question, you know, where is this information? Where, you know, no, nobody knows. Okay, now they talk about gene regulatory networks, etc., that may turn on this system or that system. And the key thing you're talking about is there's like over 200 different types of cells on the body, right? So, as you say, differentiation. So you've got every maybe people don't understand that every cell in the body, almost every cell in the body, has the exact same DNA, but the cell, in, the beta cell in your pancreas, it turn it it uses the it DNA to make insulin and the and, and and one of the ones maybe in your thyroid gland is, is going to make the thyroid hormone, but it still has the same DNA. So this is your point that you're bringing up. It's just so amazing that all these cells somehow differentiate. They become uh, they become uh, the, the, the tissue that they're going to be. And of course, once they do that, then they can't they can't multiply, etc. So early on, though, um, they, they have that potential. This is the whole point about uh, adult stem cells, etc. Yes. Uh, you have a full chapter on allegations that the body is poorly designed as a as a means of um, rebutting the idea that there's an intelligent design. Uh, why do you think these arguments ultimately fail? Um, I'm not sure if Steve's with us still or not. But He's he here. To answer. Okay. Did you want to answer that, Steve? Yeah, I'll take a swing at it. So uh, th- they're, uh, they usually fail because they're not serious. Uh, and they're not serious in the sense that uh, biologists seem to be completely unaware that there is a whole engineering discipline associated with evaluating a design. And, and uh, none of the bad design arguments that I've ever seen goes through any of the rigor that an engineer would uh, deploy to evaluate a design. So if you were going to evaluate a bridge... You're going to, you know, the construction of a bridge, whether it was adequately constructed, will hold the truck, that kind of thing. You're going to go through a whole very rigorous approach to make sure that all the stresses work and so forth, correct? That's and correct. And you're saying that that doesn't happen when biologists look at the body. That's correct. So they, they, they make uh, typically one of five kinds of errors. And uh, uh, they either... So before you can evaluate a design, you have to understand the goals of the design. So one of my uh, close friends 
uh, worked on the mirror array for the James Webb Space Telescope. Mm-hmm. Designing the mirror wasn't really very hard. Evaluating the design, testing the design, making sure the design would hold up against the stresses required for its launch and deployment was took years. It took years, and that's um, and the the level of detail because they can't go fix it. You know, if something goes wrong, <laughs> it sort yeah. of had to work the first time. So the level of work that goes into evaluating and verifying a design is extraordinarily uh, detailed. And um, so if you're gonna if you're gonna take a body system and critique it. You need to understand the design. Then you have to understand, uh, this is probably the major one that people mess up on, is uh, the second point is you need to understand what the design trade-offs are. You can, you know, I could make a car that would go a million miles an hour, but it can't have any mass. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So I can't, I can't carry any cargo. And, and and more more practically speaking, as we've wanted to increase the miles per gallon, we've made the cars lighter, which makes them less safe for the occupants. That's right. right. So yeah, so there are all kinds of trade offs. There's a reason that a tractor trailer can carry large loads, and a and a Honda Civic cannot. Yes, um, they're designed for completely different uses, and they make very different trade-offs in the design space in the in those degrees of freedom we talked about. So, as a matter of engineering, there's always going to be a trade-off of some sort. That's right. So, yeah. So it's very hard to say that something was. Well, let me rephrase it. It's very easy to say something is suboptimal, but when you take a system as a whole. It's the, the notion of optimality sort of doesn't apply anymore. You, you optimize on certain design features based on what, you, what your goals are. Um, and other design features you may sub-optimize because you, you have to in order to get the thing to work. So, so the opponents of intelligent design would say, well, there was no design. So these things kind of came to pl- into place more or less by random events and and there was really no trade-off and you're saying no there's always a trade-off to make something work the way it it does is that right that's right the the forces of chemistry and physics require trade-offs for everything to to solve the problems that your body needs to solve in order to be alive you have to make trade-offs if I could just add something, one of, one of the sort of quote-unquote tricks that's done here is basically the idea is to find something that people suffer from and say it wasn't what it was badly designed, and then suddenly jump from there and say it wasn't designed at all, and then and then not try to explain how it came into existence in the first place, which is what our whole book is about. So in that chapter, as an example, we talk about the you know, the, the, the throat, pharynx, because you know, the, you're at risk choking. Of, of choking, right? Yeah. And so we go through that ex- extensively, but but the trade-off, of course, is you know one of the one of the couple of the critics say, well, if we could be like whales, you know, they have a separate entry for you know for swallowing and for breathing. Of course, the problem is we wouldn't be able to talk, you know, and and, and of course then and then that would make the our whole language centers per- superfluous. I mean, you know, they all have to be there at the same time. Um, so, but but they never mention that we should be whales, you know. So it it, it really is. 
sort of humorous. As, as Steve says, I, I don't think they're very serious, but people do buy into it uh, because if you really thought about it uh, a little bit, you realize that they're. Uh, so if we're designed by this great intelligence, and and you don't try to identify what that is specifically. I mean, you're not uh, promoting a, a a Christian view or a the you are more or less a theistic view in a general sense. But if if this great intelligence is the cause and design of our bodies, how come we wear out? I don't know. Why do we die? That's right. That's what I'm asking. <laughs> so this is the so this is the more serious part of the bad design argument, and that is degradation. Mm. Uh, one of the one of the problems the, that the proponents of the bad design argument make is, that, or one of the failures, is that they don't account for degradation. Everything degrades. Mm-hmm. Your TV falls apart. Your car falls apart. Your lawnmower stops working. You know, we know this. You know, eventually your roof starts leaking. Everything degrades over time. So, how do you account for that in the history of life? What is, why, why do organisms die? I mean, maybe it's programmed, maybe it's de- degradation, maybe it's some combination. Uh, you know, this is another thing that or we maybe it's so that other organisms can live. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we just don't understand. So this is another area where we just don't know enough yet. And but, Darwinism, yeah. as we've described it, wouldn't actually account for that either, would it? No. That's very <laughs> interesting. Um, Final question, uh, just about, or actually penultimate question. Does it really matter that whether we evolved, uh, were, were created, uh, like, uh, in, you know, uh, in the Christian sense or were intelligently designed in some fashion, we are what we are. Why does it matter how we came to be what we are? Well, this is, we believe this is the, the, probably the single most important question any person uh, has to choose uh, in their life. Um, If you are the result of purely material processes that did not have you in mind or the human body in mind, then um, then you are essentially a cosmic accident. There's no purpose. There's no intention. There's no value. There's no inherent value. Uh, And that's, that leads, if you believe that about yourself individually, that leads you to a very desperate place. It's a dark lack of slip. hope, isn't there? Yeah, mm. it's a it's a it's a worldview that leaves you leaves the individual with a sense of dread and despair and futileness, um, and and the opposite answer leads in exactly the opposite direction. If our bodies were intended, then maybe we as individuals are intended. And that leads to, that sort of opens up the possibilities. It leads us to a world filled with hope and the potential for purpose. And which brings us to human exceptionalism, which uh, deals with the intrinsic dignity of human life and the obligations we have uh, as human beings, simply because we're human beings. So throughout this whole interview, we end up, you know, where my passion is, which is human exceptionalism. If, if I can just add something, Wesley, to that is that, and I'm sure Steve has felt this while we've been writing this project, the sheer beauty 
right? This is what we're trying to pass on to people as well, okay? The sheer beauty of of the body or how everything works. I mean, you know, people can look at a bridge, they can look at a building, they can look at a painting, everyone can appreciate that. And I think what we want people to recognize and, and hopefully benefit from in their life in their lives is is the incredible beauty of how everything is working so well in the body. And uh, and at some level, we have to be motivated too. You know, why would I be bothered writing? And you know, why am I writing this for twenty years or Steve last four or five years or like what you do about human exceptionalism? You know, um, you're out there sticking your neck out and, and standing up for you know uh, humanity. Um, and there's a, there's there's something in our hearts. There's something deep in our hearts that are that is motivating us. And it and this and is maybe the, that's something that can't be measured. Exactly, that's the crux of what's part of the part of the book, but I think that binds the three of us together. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And creativity. I mean, moral, moral sense, creativity, things that, that really, you know, you cannot, um, you know, an AI, I've talked to, I've had shows on AI. I mean, they're just following our, their programming. Human beings are different than that. Well, we're out of time. So what next for Stephen Loffman and Howard Glicksman? Well, so we, uh, in this book, we introduce a theory of biological design. It's uh, early times for this theory, but it has a lot of legs and it's got a lot of ways to run. So we are, we are actively working on research uh, on this new theory. So um, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and um, promise that at some point in the future, uh, maybe even in my lifetime, there will be a second book. Uh, which is exploring this theory in much greater detail with uh, with back, backing it up with uh, scientific research. I think from our experience, I was just going to say, yeah, I'm, I'm just staying there with Steve, uh, you know, on his coattails, as my wife says. But but I would hope that the, the, what we've written in this book uh, will be very, it's sort of like a, a primer for engineers, so every engineer who who sees where their where their specialty fits into something in the body, they'll recognize, hey, I can you know I can speak to that. I, I see how that fits into what I do, and and we'll oh, allow more research. So you would like research. to have other people come and contribute to the research you're doing, and and with regard to the biological engineering aspect. Absolutely. Yes, and that's, that, and biological yeah. engineering. We're not talking about uh, you know genetic engineering the body. You're talking about figuring out how it works. Yeah, right. You reverse engineering the systems in the body, and that will that will give us uh, great information about how the body came to be in in the history of life. So, there part of our theory is that organic growth occurs, so that not necessarily things were created the way we see them today, but that things change over time, and we want to understand the forces behind those changes. Well, this has been very interesting, and I look forward to your next book. And thanks for being with me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks, Wes. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org slash human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. 
Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.